I don't know any of you guys yet, or don't know some of you, I think I know most of you. Uh, my name is Jaron. I'm a pastoral trainee here, and uh, yeah, it's just it's my privilege, it's my my joy to get to preach uh, God's word to you this morning. Um, so, if this is your first Sunday with us, we've been in the series called "That You May Believe," and as Pastor David brings us back to week after week in John chapter twenty, verse thirty-one, it says. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you would have life in his name. This really is the mission statement of this gospel. And we learned last week in Jesus' meeting with Nicodemus the Pharisee that through Christ, we have salvation, where we are free from condemnation and love the light that exposes truth. Now, today we'll be in John chapter 3, verse 22 through 30. And if, and if any of you forgot to bring your Bibles today, or you don't own one, we have Bibles over at the Hub, um, which is our gift to you. Okay, so let's uh, open our Bibles to John chapter 3, verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. And he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anan near Salem because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness Look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Will you pray with me? Father, as we come together this morning with the joy of praising your name, with the joy of knowing who you are because you've made yourself known to us, Father, I ask that, that you give us a hunger and a desire to continually draw near to you, to continually draw near to your Son who has revealed you. That, Father, as we've, we've had such an amazing time of worship this morning, that that worship would be continuing constantly in our lives. And especially as we open your word and see yourself revealed to us. So, Father, as the heart of this text continually tells us, we must be pointing to Christ. So I ask in this time that we would point to Christ, our only Savior, our King. Amen. What we will be learning today is that we follow Christ and not man, knowing it's God who gives us all that we have that we would point to the bridegroom, finding our joy in his glory. 
As we begin, we see in verse 22 through 24 that most of what is written has to do with where Jesus and his disciples were going in the ancient Holy Land. Now, before we start delving into the text, I just want to step back for a second and maybe address an attitude to Scripture that some of us might have, whether we know it or not. See, when we come to verses that talk about the locations that the events of the Bible take place in, it can be easy to glaze over what seem to be unimportant facts and details. Like going to and from a place or where a place is. But if we truly believe that the Bible is the perfect word of God, we should be careful that we don't glaze over transitional passages like this. We don't come to scripture to cherry pick inspirational verses that will get us through the day. We need to come to God's word to be taught by it, standing under its authority which means we must study it with an honor for it that honors all. There's something that's not familiar. I challenge you to actually be encouraged that there is so much historical content between the narrative of the people and the teaching of the Bible. Just the fact that the historical details are mentioned in the Bible is one of the attributes of its 66 books that sets it apart from so many other texts um, and scriptures that claim to be the word of God, like the false religion of the Gnostics, who would steal Christian phrases and language with a completely different meaning, who basically believed that God who created the universe was a lesser God, an evil God, but he accidentally made people with the spirit of the true true and good God, therefore, Everything that is material is evil, but everything that is spiritual is good. Many of the Gnostic Gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Peter, claim to be authentic, but were written almost a thousand years after Christ and have no meaningful connection to history. So application to my side note, be grateful that God not only gave us his revealed word, um, but in revealing himself through the truth of his word, Um, His word is mentioned in time and space within the pages of the Bible. So we should, out of a heart for knowing God, joyfully do some homework and seek to understand God's word. The people, the places, and the things of those time periods. And seek to understand why God intentionally chose to include all of what is written. And we can do some of this by taking advantage of some awesome resources that God has blessed us with. For starters, just a trusted study Bible. Some of my favorites being the ESV study Bible or the Reformation study Bible. And seek to put ourselves in the shoes of the people in the biblical era so we don't impose our modern day lens on the eyes of its original ancient audience. Remember, we don't come to God's word to find profitable and relevant truth. We come, as 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We don't come to Scripture to find relevance. We come to Scripture because it is relevant, because God said it. So as we look at verse 22 through 26, we see that the main point of these verses really is that Jesus was increasing in his ministry, and John was decreasing. And his disciples were jealous that 
that's, and that's what we will be learning today. That we follow Christ and not man. Verse 22 begins with, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. Now some context. We saw earlier, last week, in, or the last um, weeks in chapter 2, verse 23, that Jesus was in Jerusalem attending the Passover feast, which would be held for seven days. And while at Jerusalem, in the first, 20, first 21 verses of chapter 3, Jesus has his famous meeting with the Pharisee Nicodemus. And in verse 22 says, After this, after Passover, and Jesus' time in Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples, because of a, a disciple would never leave his teacher's side, went into the Judean countryside. Now, some Bible critics try to point out a flaw in verse 22. Because the city of Jerusalem is already within the borders of the Judean of Judea, they say it's nonsensical to say they went into the Judean countryside when they were already in Judea. But the distinction isn't being made between two regions, but between two areas within a single region. It's between urban and rural. Jesus and his disciples were in an urban section of Judea, within the city walls of Jerusalem. Then they went into the rural area, the backwoods, as the text says of the Judean countryside. So why would Jesus go into the countryside? We see as we move into the rest of verse 22, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. Then verse 23 adds, John also was baptizing at Anan near Salem because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. The very word Anan means many springs. Now, who is John the Baptist? We see in John chapter 1 verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Then in verse 23, he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John the Baptist was the prophet who was to point to and prepare the way for Israel's Messiah, their Savior. And one of the main ways he prepared people for the Messiah was through their need for cleansing from sin, telling them to be baptized or to bathe, to clean themselves because they were dirty. Now, this is the, very, or this is the only gospel that mentions Jesus baptizing. And it is pointed to more clearly in chapter 4, verse 2, that Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples. Nonetheless, they did it under his authority. Which brings up the question of why. Why would Jesus be baptizing with water? When we go back to chapter 1, verse 33, we see the John, that John the Baptist himself tells of the message he was given by God, that he, whom, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So the baptism that Jesus is, is administering in our text today should not be viewed as a fulfillment of that text. The first reason being that this is a baptism, baptism of water, not the Holy Spirit. The second reason is that it's Jesus' disciples, not Jesus himself. The third reason is that the fulfillment of Jesus baptizing with the Holy Spirit occurs in Acts chapter 2, specifically during, Jesus, 
during Peter's sermon in verse 32 and 33. So we see that it's clear that this has no connection to Jesus giving the Spirit, also known as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Which brings me right back to the same question. Why is Jesus baptizing? And why is he doing it so close to John? Verse 24 helps bring more clarity. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now this little side comment really is helpful for us to understand the significance of Jesus baptizing next to John. The Apostle John didn't add this in his gospel to point out the obvious. Of course, John couldn't be in prison and be baptizing at the same time. Let's look at some of the other gospels to understand what's going on. We see in Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. Now, when he, talking about Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Then down in verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Also, in Mark chapter 1, verse 14, it says, Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So as we go back to verse 24, He's telling us that the events of today's text are happening before the public ministry of Jesus because John was not yet put in prison. So we need to understand that today's passage is talking about how John the Baptist's public ministry was coming to a close so that Jesus' public ministry could begin. This is really the true hinge where the Old Testament turns over to the New where the last Old Testament prophet diminishes as the long-awaited Messiah finally arrives to usher in the kingdom of God. Jesus comes into the picture, into John the Baptist's turf, to really replace him. So even though baptism is being mentioned in this passage, baptism is not the point of the passage. The point of the passage is that Jesus is the promised Messiah that all the prophets before had prophesied about. That really is the message of the text, Jesus. <laughs> Sunday school answers sometimes are very fitting. <laughs> now we come to verse 25, which introduces us to some of John the Baptist's disciples. And in the section where it talks about John's disciples, God uses their sinfulness as a warning to us, but also as a teaching moment. And there's a lot to learn from these disciples but we shouldn't look at them and their failure from the vantage point of mocking their blindness, but from a standpoint of identifying with them as sinners, understanding how easy we can be deceived through our own sinfulness and blindness. Verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. With the help of different commentaries, including D.A. Carson's commentary on John, I learned purification through different types of bathing and daily washing ceremonies was a big discussion within Judaism. So it's no surprise that John the Baptist's ministry sparked a lot of attention and a lot of questions among the Jews as to what this baptism, this ceremonial cleansing was for. And we know from Luke chapter 3, verse 3, 
that this was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It was, the, it was to prepare the hearts of the people for the Messiah to come. This really is where the conversation should have ended with his disciples, pointing the unnamed Jew to Jesus. But from what follows, it seems that the unnamed Jew pointed Jesus out to them. The fact that the people were coming to Jesus and not coming to them. And the rest of verse 26 says, And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to him who you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. Now remember, John and his disciples' entire ministry, their entire calling, was to prepare Israel for their Messiah, for the Christ, for the for Jesus, but once Jesus' popularity took away people from John's ministry, they started to complain, even exaggerate, saying all are going to him. And we know that's not true from verse 23. We see people going to both their ministries. So it's too easy for us to look at their jealousy, then say, well, if that was me, I would have been different. But let me ask you, would you be different? Remember what it means to be a disciple. These men would have given up everything to follow John the Baptist. By our standards, they had given up far more than us to serve God. But even though on the surface they were very godly men, in their heart they weren't serving God but man. See, the relationship between a rabbi, which means teacher, and his disciples, his followers, was incredibly close. They greatly loved and respected John, but their jealousy showed that their love and respect for John held him in an unhealthy place, which is reserved only for Jesus. And really at the heart of this jealousy is the sin of idolatry. See, if the true motive for serving God isn't for his glory alone, then you're committing idolatry. You might be asking, what is idolatry? Idolatry in the simplest terms is the act of worshiping idols, giving admiration, love, and reverence to something created rather than to its creator. Look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. And this is when John, or this is when God is giving Moses the Ten Commandments for the nation of Israel, God's chosen people in the Old Testament. The very first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, Don't have any other gods before me. The idolatry of the disciples is expressed in their jealousy over Jesus' success. Something we should all take away from these few verses is that we must be careful not to hold anyone higher than Jesus. John Calvin comments in this passage, We are taught by their example into what mistakes those men fall who are actuated by a sinful desire to please man rather than by a, disease, by a zeal for God. And we are likewise reminded that the single object which we ought to have in view and to promote by all means is that Christ alone may have preeminence. So the question that the text brings up is, are you honoring man more than God? Now, something that's so beautiful about what we see next is that John doesn't just rebuke his disciples, but he points them to the the sweetness 
of who Christ is. And that he's not just another teacher, but he's the Christ, the Son of God, the bridegroom. In John's reply, he doesn't just say, you're drinking poison to get well. But he points them again to the true remedy for their sickness. When John the Baptist is confronted by his disciples, he doesn't complain. Or sorry, when, he, when John the Baptist is confronted by his disciples' complaint, and is looking at the exact same situation, how does he respond? We see in verse 27 that John responds first by acknowledging that it's only God who gives us what we have. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Look at his answer. A person cannot receive one thing. In his reply to his disciples, John starts with a negative statement. A person cannot. Now, some try to narrow down who the person is, whether he's talking about Jesus or John the Baptist. And I truly believe that when he says a person, he's purposely making a blanket statement about humanity, a person, any person. We cannot receive one thing unless John's connecting for his disciples heaven and earth the reality of what's physical and spiritual, John points them to the reality of God, showing them that the very ministry that they were complaining about losing, they had only because God had given it to them. And in the context of the conversation, John is saying, you guys wouldn't even have anything to lose unless it was first granted you to have. He begins with God's sovereignty, which is his supreme authority and rule over everything. This is an incredibly important point for us to understand. If the God we are following isn't ultimately sovereign in total control, then we are not following the God of the Bible. Let's look at Isaiah 46, starting with verse 9. As God talks to the nation of Israel, his chosen people, as they are worshiping idols made of gold and silver, Listen to what he says about himself. Verse 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. See, the main point of what's being communicated by John in the context of his conversation is that God gave Jesus more and John less so that Jesus would be glorified. And we can see that this is clearly the direction that the text will point to. God the Father gave the ministry John had as he had to prepare the way for Christ. And now that the way was prepared, he must decrease and Christ would increase. So what we take from this is God is in control. I think this is one of the truths of the Bible that as you read its pages, you clearly see that God is in control. But a lot of times it doesn't feel like it. Thursday, as I was coming home from work, um, thinking about this very point, 
it's really funny as after you'll find out what happens. Because I'm thinking about, okay, how God uses everything for his own purposes. He's in control. I'm exiting the freeway. There's a long lineup of cars. And the car right in front of me hadn't noticed that everyone in front of her had started to move forward. So she she was still staying still. And I, and I realized this a little bit too late. So as I'm sliding 20 to 30 feet into her rear bumper, I wasn't really um, finding a lot of peace in God's control and sovereignty in that moment. <laughs> and I think, I think for a lot of us, we have moments like that. We have tons of times where we feel like we're in a car sliding out of control into someone's rear bumper. Just so you're not distracted, no one was hurt in that situation, and yeah, everything's fine there. So yeah, I think there are a lot of situations in life where we feel like our lives are a car sliding out of control. But as we submit ourselves to Scripture, we see that God does all things according to His own purpose. So really, the text brings us very brings us this very important question. Do you believe God is in control? If you say yes, then do you live a life that acknowledges God is in control? In today's text, God, God's purpose is clearly seen in sovereignly diminishing John's ministry so Jesus alone will be made much of. And this really brings us to the heart of why God does anything. God does all things, ultimately, to glorify himself. God's glory is displayed and seen in all of his attributes. Some people try to make everything God does out of love by saying God is love. But that's not the full story. God is wise. God is just. God is perfect. God is infinite. God is unchanging. God is the creator of all things. See, every single attribute of God glorifies himself. His perfect character, no single attribute, encapsulates all of who God is. God's attributes are like different rivers that flow into the ocean of God's glory. Our greatest joy is to glorify God in submission to his will. To swim in the infinite ocean of his beautiful glory. And all those attributes are most clearly seen in his son, Jesus Christ. See, we learn that everything God does ultimately points God, points to God, the son, Jesus Christ. And that's where we see John pointing the disciples. Verse 28. We see in verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. What John is saying needs to be made very clear. He's saying, you guys shouldn't be getting this wrong. You've heard with your own ears what I said. I'm not Jesus. I'm not the Christ. I'm not the one you should be looking to. But the rest of verse 29, but I have been sent before him. Just like the servant of a king that would go ahead of his master to announce to the city that the king was arriving. So in the course of John's ministry, you see over and over again him standing down from a place of honor but by denying being anything but a servant to God. From John's example, 
I think a healthy question for us to ask ourselves is, do you try to be Christ to others, or do you try to point others to Christ? We see the course that John chose in verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. John uses the language of a wedding. And really quick, what is a wedding? It's a celebration. Celebrating the covenant between a husband and a wife, where the two become one. This language would have been incredibly familiar to the men who followed John. The Old Testament talks about the nation of Israel as the bride who is continually unfaithful to God. But God had only loved them, yet they went after other gods, other lovers. And because of their unfaithfulness, God punished them. But God promised, because he's a God who keeps his covenant, that he would redeem his people, his chosen people, that he would one day come for his bride. We see in Hosea 2, 16 through 20. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal, one of the, one of the idols that nations around them would worship and Israel had fallen into um, idolatry with. You won't profane me. You won't call me your Baal, for I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth. And they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice in steadfastness, love, and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Where does John the Baptist place himself in the analogy of the wedding? As the friend of the bridegroom. In ancient Israel, the friend of the groom would be the equivalent to today's best man. And back then, it was his job to make sure the wedding ran smoothly. So he was also the wedding planner. And what does he equate Jesus to in the story? The groom. He is again saying incredibly clearly, Jesus is God. And as we see in verse 29, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John's use of the word joy in the text is not, a shallow, is not a shallow usage. He's not being humble. He's being honest. How many magazine covers do you see telling you five ways to be happy or articles telling you to seek joy within yourself? In the commentary on John by D.A. Carson again, the joy of the best man belongs to the Baptist, and it is now complete. This gospel repeatedly associates joy with the verb pleron, to fulfill, to complete. 
Here John the Baptist means that he has the final and ultimate satisfaction of knowing that his God-given ministry has been successful. The rising prominence of Jesus, as upsetting as it may be to some of John's disciples, floods John with floods John himself with surpassing joy. Because what exactly because that was exactly what he himself had worked for. God's word tells us that there is boundless, limitless joy to be found when we are wholeheartedly looking at the author of joy, the one who gives us a complete joy, Jesus himself. But joy isn't separated from Jesus Christ. Completeness is something only you experience when you are in union with Christ. So let me ask you, Are you seeking joy in something other than Christ right now? We see in verse 30, John utters these famous words, He must increase, but I must decrease. Every time I read or hear those words, I would think of Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh, sitting in his pathetic little stick house on a rainy day with his head drooping to the ground, muttering in a depressing tone, but that's wrong. That's absolutely a false way to read this text. When you look at the context of this passage, John says these words in the midst of joy. The joy of his God-given role as the friend of the groom can only be completed if he steps aside to let the groom come in and take his bride. He's saying, I want to be less so Christ can be more. That's where my joy will be found. In Christ being glorified. So I ask this question. Have you truly become less so Christ can be more in your life? Our application from this is that joy is only found serving and pointing to the only Savior. So that he will be glorified. What we read in the Gospels of Jesus Christ and the good news is how God calls us who are dirty filthy and unfaithful. But by Jesus' work on the cross, he took the punishment for our sin. He gave himself up for us and cleansed us. And by faith alone, in Christ alone, only through the grace of God alone, he is our perfect husband. And in love calls us his bride. As we end today, I want to leave you with this question. Are you looking to Christ? And I know this is a question that comes up week after week, but it's so relevant. So I I ask you not just to say, yes, of course I am, but to truly search your heart and ask God, God, am am I looking to you? Am I looking to your son? Am I finding joy in anything lesser than you? So again, as we end, are you looking to Christ? Let's pray.